Welcome back to The Lover's Hole, where we're rereading the Aubrey Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. Ian, we are pretty much dead in the middle of, and, and you know, kind of pressing past the middle of Reverse of the Metal. Can you remind us what we learned last week and give us a little preview of what's coming up here in Chapter 7? I'd love to, Mike. We've been ashore and in Hampshire and in London for several chapters now. We're deep in the complicated and personal affairs of Stephen and Jack. We might remember that Stephen had had this glorious walk amidst nature out in Hampshire by Jack Aubrey's place, interrupted by cuckoos reminding him of Diana's unfaithfulness. But he turned into this beautiful bucolic scene with Babington and Jack and the crews playing a cricket match. Stephen learning to fall out of love a little bit with the what he saw as the very boring game of cricket. Martin, Nathaniel Martin delighted to spend time enjoying and relishing his game of cricket. Stephen was giving Martin advice on picking out housewares for his wedding. Meanwhile, the sailors had transformed Ashgrove Cottage to this high level of naval spotlessness. Sophie had got home before all of this restoration and spotlessness was finished, but had nonetheless had this very beautiful, very touching scene of the candlelight dinner with Jack in a horse stall right before, at the end of the chapter, Jack was arrested. And all we know is that the arrest is not a suit for debt. It's a legal case for him conspiring to defraud the stock exchange. This week then, Mike, we get to hear more about this upcoming trial. For the first time in a couple of chapters, we've got Jack and Stephen close together. We're moving up towards Jack's upcoming trial. We're going to learn, as Jack does, and as Stephen does as well, about the realities of the English system of justice. Jack believes it's the best in the world. He's going to learn something about the reality of lawyers and judges and politics in Regency Britain. We see the inside of yet another prison, a British one this time, and we observe Stephen's love for his friends. There's some good detective work to save Jack as they attempt to unravel the mystery of Ellis Palmer, the person who first tried to tip off Jack about this stock exchange scheme. There's also some detective work for us to do, and that has already been done by Patrick O'Brien in seeing the connection between the events of this chapter and the real-world life of Jack Aubrey's alter ego, Thomas Cochran. Nice. So, Mike, it's all to play for. Jack's got to get to know his legal team first, hasn't he? Well, yeah, and Jack's got to get a legal team first. And as the chapter opens, we join Stephen and Sir Joseph Blaine. And Blaine is telling Stephen he wishes he had better news. And he says, and O'Brien writes, but at times, one's friends are sadly disappointing. That's Blaine. And Stephen Mm. replies, at others, however, they exert themselves to a degree that even the most sanguine could never expect. So here's this friendship between Sir Joseph and Stephen, one of the many friendships we'll see Stephen relishing and protecting in in this chapter here. And Sir Joseph's apologizing because he had been trying to get this lawyer named Holroyd to represent Jack. And Holroyd is really good with juries. And he's one of the few counselors, one of the few attorneys who gets along with the judge on this trial, Lord Quinborough. Quinborough, we understand, you know, really bullies attorneys, very political, but he would be much less likely to bully Holroyd if Holroyd was Jack's counsel and would treat Jack much more decently if he was Holroyd's client. And Blaine's kind of surprised because 
Holroyd's under some obligation to Blaine. And at first, Blaine doesn't understand this, but later he learns that another judge has died suddenly and Holroyd is at the top, you know, kind of the top candidate to replace him. And that being the case, Holroyd at this point does not want to upset the ministry. He knows that the ministry are are really zealously using this case to damage their radical opposition and to destroy General Aubrey. So if he was seen representing Aubrey's son, this is going to hurt his position for the judgeship. So I think he's a little sympathetic Uh, But he doesn't want to upset the ministry. He doesn't want to upset Quinborough, who, besides being the judge, is a member of the cabinet and is also very anti-radical, as is the chancellor. And this is going to be in the chancellery court. So Blaine notes that it's a little odd for a judge to be a cabinet member. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, kind of in politics of the present day, especially when this is a ministry-driven case. You know, it seems like we're, we're really stacking the odds against Jack here. Yeah. What happened to the separation of powers? What's happened to the separation right. of powers? We never had separation of powers. We don't have a constitution. <laughs> right, right. There you go. Yeah, so it's, it's odd, isn't it? We've got this judge appointed to hear this trial, who has a reputation for being a bully to lawyers and has a reputation for being a bit of a political conservative. This this oughtn't to be a problem for Jack if it were not for a few other of the political connections going on here. Stephen, I think, understands what's going on here. He's pretty sure that he says that Jack is no radical, hates even a moderate Whig and only thinks about politics twice a year. But Blaine points out that Jack is the son of a radical. And Mike, I think this is where we see that Jack's affairs are, to use the phrase, tolerably complex. Jack's father, General Aubrey, appears to have gone to ground in Scotland. He's the one that's the associate of several of these radicals. Stephen, perhaps jokingly, even suggests that maybe he's been shaved and hidden among the repentant Magdalens or Maudlins at Clapham. And I think, Mike, that these repentant nuns are an order of nuns working in the Maudlin Hospital in Clapham at the time. Right. Anyhow, disguised as a nun or not... General Aubrey's nowhere to be found. No one knows where he is. And even though his parliamentary privileges might cover him, he wants to risk nothing. And he wants to make sure that his son Jack and Jack's friends all take the blame. Stephen has had his own fairly trenchant opinion already about General Aubrey. I think a little while ago, he wished that General Aubrey might choke on his next meal. Blaine says he is a horrible old man. And I think that's about it. For a character study of General Aubrey, I think he's got nothing. He's got nothing here. He doesn't seem to have any honor. He doesn't seem to have anything going for him at all. So maybe there's an opportunity here. Maybe there's an opportunity here. Let's keep going. Meanwhile, Holroyd tells Blaine that the entire defense is going to rest upon identifying one man. And that is the man in the post chase, this guy, Ellis Palmer, who started the lie going. So Holroyd, this is still in the spirit of giving some advice here, gives Blaine the name of somebody who can help a thief taker, the best in London. This guy is called Pratt. Blaine hires him on and introduces Stephen to him. And we learn that Pratt, this thief taker, has all the appearance of being a lawyer's clerk, knows, however, that many people look down at his profession almost as an informer. So, Mike, there's there's every reason here why Stephen and Pratt might dislike each other because we know what Stephen thinks about informers. 
right? Pratt reports that he has no solid evidence, but he knows in his heart that the whole thing is a put-up job. There is no parliamentary draftsman named Ellis Palmer. There's no one at the docks who remembers seeing him, even though they did remember seeing the Quaker and the Flash Cove from the fight. This guy wasn't a regular cartel traveler. At the sitting born in, the daughter of the house remembered him only because he'd been there once before, but acted like he came often and was so particular about the wine. So the daughter of the landlord gave a good description that matched the description of, that Jack had given. This might be great for court. This might be great for finding Palmer if only Pratt can get his hands on him. And we learn, Mike, that Pratt goes, first of all, looking for Palmer in Lion's Inn. What's the haunt of Chancery Lawyers, we learn? Lion's Inn doesn't exist anymore, but it was then one of the divisions of the High Court, one of these inns, you know, these collections, these aggregations of uh, law courts and barristers' chambers. Um, Lion's Inn, according to Wikipedia, by the time it was closed down in the 1860s, had the reputation for being the the haunt of only the worst kind of lawyers. <laughs> so maybe not a great omen there for Jack and Stephen and Holroyd. Yeah, but it does sound par for the course for uh, you know, for the bad guys in this reading, for sure. Oh, yeah. it does. Of course it they'd does. be at Lion's Inn. Well, you know, Stephen's sitting here with Blaine and Pratt, but he also just got off this night coach. He's traveled all night and, and he excuses himself. You know, I think he's feeling at this point, like, you know, he's heard enough. We don't have any evidence yet. He goes upstairs, sits down in what O'Brien tells us is Sir Joseph's book-lined privy. And I would yep. say, boy, what a great thing. Nothing like a book-lined privy, you know, your toilet lined with shelves of books, perhaps a little hemorrhoid ointment too, <laughs> for spending too much time there. <laughs> and then Stephen sort of breaks a cigar in half and smokes half of it, I, I assume, as he reads there. Um, and he, he's trying to recover a little bit. He had a tough nighttime journey. The coach was lurching. He had a bunch of drunk fellow travelers. And he had spent most of the time worrying that Jack was really undone. And he was also worrying about Martin. And O'Brien kind of throws in here that Stephen had operated perhaps too late on Martin for a strangulated hernia and that Martin's still in grave danger. So, you know, a lot's happened here that, you know, kind of, wait, wait, last we left our heroes and, and a lot's gone on here. Um, he also... O'Brien tells us, had a very trying time with Sophie. So somewhere in between last chapter and this chapter, Stephen's gone back, seen Sophie. And O'Brien writes, you know, from Stephen's perspective, her tears, her uncontrolled distress, and her need for support were something of a disappointment. And he's thinking to himself, okay, I realized that she had traveled all night the night before. It was a really sudden reversal. They were so happy to be together. And then boom, Jack's arrested and carried off. But Stephen can't help but compare her to Diana or O'Brien writes, at least his idealized Diana, who would have shown more courage, more fortitude and more manliness in O'Brien and Stephen's words here. Um, you know, Diana wouldn't have sounded anything like Mrs. Williams. She would have tried to bribe or bamboozle the people that came to arrest Jack and failing that. You know, she would have followed him with clean clothes and, and the things he'd need, regardless of what he told her to do, rather than just sitting around wringing her hands. And then O'Brien writes, for a while, he, meaning Stephen, twisted the knife in his wound, thinking of Diana as a tigress. Then, after a final draft that made his head swim, he threw his hissing stump away and walked downstairs. So Stephen has kind of cleared his mind here. We get a little insight into what he's been thinking and now he heads back down to Pratt and Blaine. 
Yeah, and it's, it's funny, like, Team Jack is a bit rocked on its heels here. In this, the time that's elapsed between the end of the chapter and what we're reading now in this chapter, all, the, all these things have started to fall away from Jack's support network. Um, Sophie is a tearful wreck. It really sounds like General Aubrey Jack's father has abandoned him. Nathaniel Martin's got a hernia. You know, right. everybody's everybody's letting Jack down. So I think Stephen's going to have to go out and rebuild Team Aubrey here. So he's spending more time sitting drinking coffee with Pratt and with Blaine, and he asks what kind of evidence Pratt had that this was, as he had claimed, a put-up job. How does he know it so so surely in his heart? Had he learned something from Jack? And Pratt, who by this time has had some some chance to talk in depth to Jack on his own, said that it wasn't so much what Jack said, but how he said it that made Pratt convinced that Jack is not the guilty party here. He's actually amused that anyone would think Jack Aubrey capable of this kind of manipulation and deception on his own. Jack doesn't know about the market. He doesn't know about time bargains. He doesn't know about selling forward. You know, all of the, the stock market jargon is completely alien to jack i think the spirit the idea of speculation is pretty alien to jack um before this point anyway mm. pratt said nonetheless all this evidence of you know innocent good nature isn't going to get anywhere with the judge or the jury after the prosecution has started to batter him but he pratt says i've heard many denials in my career but jack's rings true and pratt says in the text why as the Romans say, you would give him the blessed sacrament without confession. I have not listened to him five minutes, no, nor two, before I knew he was as innocent as a babe unborn. But dear me, gentlemen, lambs to the slaughter ain't in it. I've rarely seen the like. And this is very touching, quick pen portrait here by this guy, Pratt, who has earned our trust very quickly by being very savvy and very streetwise can clearly see from a mile away that Jack is honourable, trusting, naive, but a good man who sees other people as good. And sadly, this this good character, Jack Aubrey, is in a tough spot. Mike, it's Jack Ashore all over again. Right, Jack Ashore. And Jack just you know telling Pratt, oh, don't worry about Ellis Palmer. He was a really good guy. I'm sure he's going to come back and clear all <laughs> this stuff up. <laughs> you know, Pratt knows better. It turns out Pratt's father was a prison guard. So when Pratt was very little, he grew up around thieves and the thieves' children were his friends at at these jails. And as his father changed prisons and changed jobs, Pratt also came to know know, what he would describe as low attorneys and jailers and constables and ward officers. And those contacts and his experience, he served as, as a time as a Bow Street runner, has really served him well in his own business. He thought that Palmer was going to be pretty easy to find. Um, he had learned that you know he had headed for Lions Inn, and Palmer thought, well, I'll get the Lions Inn. I've got this unique description of him. He's like five seven, lean. He's got either a bob wig or he powders his own hair. He's in his fifties and he's a sharp. And uh, he's also you know he's not only a sharp, but he's a gentleman by birth. And so he was saying, you know, mm. a, a sharp, a sharp. 
And, and Palmer explains to him the difference between sharps, that is dishonest persons who, you know, pull anything over on you and, and always into that. And a flat, a flat, you know, this is kind of lower uh, criminal world cant for sharps and flats, dishonest yeah. people and, and, and suckers or what we would call honest people, right? Um, so, and, and, and yeah. Danny Ocean would probably call him a player. He's a player. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well put. Exactly right. Well, and perhaps saying, you know, if if Palmer hadn't been a gentleman, uh, as O'Brien writes here, the captain would have seen through him. Simple though he, that is to say, the, the captain would have seen through him for sure. So I love how Palmer is kind of saying, yeah, e- even a simpleton like Jack would have seen that he wasn't a gentleman. But clearly Palmer pulled it off. So he's convinced this guy used to be a gentleman. Now he's kind of on the seedier side. He's unique looking. You know, he shouldn't be that hard to find, but so far he has because he didn't live at at Lions Inn as Palmer had hoped. And Palmer's now, you know, trying to develop some new leads. And he's also worried that a fraud this elaborate, and, and he's come across a couple of them in his time, is always planned. It's well planned, it's well executed. And there's a confidential agent who kind of hires all the other players involved. And that agent, and the other people are always, as he says, at two or three removes from the actual principles. Uh, and these principles are going to make sure that their confidential agent is highly motivated not to reveal uh, their identity. You know, they're going to have some felony that they're holding over this person. It's going to be some reason, you know, the threat of blackmail or murder or, you know, kind of, you know, I know where your kids go to school that, it, you know, so Pratt's really concerned and Blaine and Matron kind of exchange a knowing look because, you know, they've seen this all the time in yeah. their intelligence network here. Um, you know, and I, I remember this growing up. <laughs> I was, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I was. The intelligence um, bit or the blackmail bit? <laughs> no, the blackmail here, the power of potential blackmail. I'm, I'm really young. We move into a new apartment complex and, and there's this neighbor a couple of years older and he seems to take me under his wing and show me around, including convincing me to cross this street to see this wooded area where he said, you know, it's really neat. All the kids in the neighborhood play here. And at the time I'm telling him, look, you know, I'm not allowed to cross the streets without my parents being with me. Really can't do that. Oh, you're going to miss something great over here, Mike. You should really see. We'll just go right over and come right back, which we did. And for quite some time, this phrase, you wouldn't want me to tell your parents about crossing the street, you know, really haunted me. It meant me giving up all my special possessions, <laughs> you know, until my parents finally noticed all these things are missing, got the full story out of me and went and confronted this kid and his parents and got my stuff back. But I'm glad I learned this at an early age, rather than waiting until I got into corporate or the London underworld yeah. or, you know, got sucked into some stock exchange fraud. Yeah, just a n- narrow escape there. Right. And it's funny, we've got this this world of uh, blackmail and manipulation that Jack Aubrey regards as completely alien. And I yeah. think we've got, it's noticeable that all of this is coming from a conversation between Pratt and Blaine and Stephen. And they're exploring this shady, underhand world of blackmail and manipulation. Jack hates it, but we're realizing, I think, that ignorance of it and rejection of it is going to cost Jack potentially dearly here. Mm. Uh, So Stephen reminds Pratt that we need to find Palmer. This guy, Palmer, is going to be critical for Jack's defense. We're not going to get to the principles. Palmer is the link person. He's the connection between the story of what happened in the coach and the story of what happened on the stock market. 
He offers Palmer double his wages and high wages for any colleagues that he can employ to produce Palmer before the trial. And this is a little eye-opener for Pratt here, who realizes that Stephen's a bit of a mark, potentially, or at least Stephen's a big tipper. After Pratt leaves, Blaine kind of warns Maturin and says, you'll never become a rich man making deals like that. And Mike, here we learn an interesting little bit of side news, or at least a reinforcement of a bit of news about Stephen. Stephen says he's already a rich man, having just inherited his godfather's estate. He has more money, he says, than he ever knew a private person could possess. And Blaine says that Stephen's godfather, who we met a few books ago, that was Ramon de los Tretti Casademon from The Surgeon's Mate, was one of the richest men in Spain. And Stephen's already thinking about how he might like to endow a, a, a professorial appointment, a chair of comparative osteology, the study of skeletons and bony structures. And Stephen says he might just do this. Blaine, meanwhile, agrees to keep it confidential, to keep Stephen's wealth on the down low with people in society. He says, an appearance of decent mediocrity is better by far, infinitely wiser from every point of view. And Speaking of someone who doesn't normally have to contrive an appearance of decent mediocrity, I can get on board with this. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm with you. I am with you, Ian. Gosh. But it is good advice, isn't it? It's good advice from Blaine saying, you know, play your cards close to your chest in terms of just the resources that you do have, especially in the world of intelligence. Yeah. And, and quite a contrast from our sort of James Bondy splash. <laughs> that, that yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I, absolutely. Keep the Aston Martin in the garage there. Let's just yeah, drive around in the Prius. <laughs> well, wealth reminds Blaine of this huge captured botanical entomological mineral collection that Sir Joseph Banks has sent over to Blaine uh, so he can have a chance to look at it before it all gets returned to France on the cartel. You know, they yeah. it seem to have this, you know, the, the naturalists anyway seem to have this idea that says, look, when... Uh, you know, France and England capture stuff that really belongs to somebody else. We're, we're going to send that stuff back home. And um, mm. he he brings Stephen in to see it. And Stephen, you know, he says, God love us seizing the dried skin of a Suriname toad. What splendor. And Blaine can't help himself. He says, you know, the Beatles are beyond anything. I spent such a happy morning with them. And they're, you know, here are these two kids. They're right in the midst of the candy shop. And Blaine's housekeeper calls them to dinner. Stephen says, you know, well, can't we just eat it in our hands, sort of like a sandwich? And then, you know, in an aside to Blaine, he says, you know, the Lord Sandwich does not get enough credit for his genial invention. All these people say unkind things about him. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's, 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 and you can see Stephen like, look, he's always been one to kind of flaunt convention. And this whole idea of sandwich, I'm sure, absolutely appeals to Stephen. Look, I wrap it in my wig and eat it. Let's just do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I I was surprised. Apparently, this sandwich thing, yeah, yeah, some truth to that. John Montague, fourth Earl of Sandwich, may or may not have invented this, but certainly, a, you know, a lot of people remembered him gambling and eating ham or roast beef wrapped in bread. And a lot of people would say, I'll, I'll have what sandwich is having. I'll have what sandwich is having. So it, it, this thing kind of becomes to be the, uh, you know, the inventor of the sandwich. Also, three-time first Lord of the Admiralty. So, uh, you know, either not a bad guy or, you know, a bad guy, but we like sandwiches. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. pretty opposite <laughs> connection. But Blaine takes all this to kind of uh, 
wealth, Sir Joseph Banks, everything else to kind of weave these things around and says to Stephen that, you know, a lot of people say unkind things about Sir Joseph Banks, like they did about the Earl of Sandwich, too. But that it's probably because people are jealous of Sir Joseph Banks' wealth. And he starts to tell Stephen all about Banks' holdings and income. And Stephen seems kind of unimpressed by the amount. Well, I guess you could get by on 30000 says Stephen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Amazing. And, 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 and Blaine is, I think, a little set back. And he says, well, Dr. Croesus, you know, this, this king of Lydia known for his wealth, or we always say richest Croesus. And, you know, he asked Stephen if Stephen finds that wealth affects him. And fascinating insight here. Stephen replies, when I remember it, I do. That is, I do find that wealth affects me. And I find its effects almost entirely discreditable. I feel better than other men, superior to them, richer in every way, richer in wisdom, virtue, worth, knowledge, intelligence, understanding, common sense, and everything except perhaps beauty. (laughs) God help us. And in such a fit, I might easily patronize Sir Joseph Banks, or he adds Newton if he was at hand. But fortunately, I do not often remember it. And when I do, I rarely believe it entirely. So, you know, it's fascinating. Stephen's kind of thinking to himself, you know, he's, he's lived so long the other way. Yeah. You know, he, he can't quite get used to it, but it does have this kind of drug-like effect on him. But Stephen continues, but penurious habits die hard, and I do not suppose I shall ever be such a heavy swell as those who are born to riches and who are wholly convinced both of their wealth and their merit. Wow. It's a real deep temptation for humans, isn't it? You know, you look around, even even if you've got a little modest pile, you look around your pile and you think, yeah, I did okay here. And right. this might not be good fortune. This might be because of my... You know, my hard work and my talent and maybe all those others who haven't got quite even my modest pile, maybe they should be a bit more like me. You know, it's, it's very easy for us to suppose that the world as we know it is what makes everybody successful. And if you're not successful, that's because you're not quite right in the ways of the world. Nice bit of self-reflection from Stephen. Maybe he's a little bit smug at believing that he's immune <laughs> right, from, this, right. uh, from this little bit of self-awareness. But it's quite a good observation. It's quite a good observation. Well, and, you know, we hear it so much in these books, this whole idea about, you know, the effect of money, the effect of wealth, the whole different class system. You know, we we read it all through Jane Austen. You know, O'Brien talks about it so much here. You know, I can't help think about today. You know, you see these memes about uh, here's the Instagram shot. Here's the reality of this person's life. You know, how we all have to put ourselves up to be bigger and more beautiful and to have more and to have everything and, and how much this dilemma, this dilemma of that day is a dilemma of our day, too. I know, yeah. you know recently with cinephiles going through the movie Master and Commander, we had a great discussion about this whole idea about families, if you will, will wealth and, and its impact on your life and how you think of each other. So absolutely. Another case of O'Brien getting us to think not only about Jack and Stephen and things back then, but about things right now. It's very true. And we're just coming to that moment, Mike, in O'Brien's career when he started to really see a return in terms of you know fame and book deals and revenues and royalties and stuff. Up to this point, though, he was pretty, to use the phrase here, he was pretty penurious. By the right. time we get to reverse of the medal, 
everybody still likes the books, but it's the same people as always liked the books, and he's not getting fresh, new, excited reviews. It strikes me that he might have been writing this slightly longingly, thinking, oh, I kind of wish that I had a pound or two so I could feel smug. Um, and I guess that this idea of living a frugal, penurious life is something that he attributes to himself, because he attributes it to Stephen Maturin to the extent that as Stephen gets up, decides to go across town, having got detailed directions from Sir Joseph Blaine, Stephen walks rather than taking a coach. And he asks directions for the streets around Marshall, see the debtor's prison. Um, the street names here are great. One is called Dirty Lane. Once he gets there, he gets lost because there are two streets named Dirty Lane in the neighborhood. He's not actually on the correct one. He finally arrives at Melancholy Walk, another fantastic street name. In a bit of a half trot, he's out of breath. A local, uh, one of the more kind locals, has given him directions to the Marshall, see this debtor's prison and offered to guide him there so that he'd arrive before closing and maybe also protect Stephen from thieves in exchange for a fee and some pork pies. Mike, you can get a lot. You can get a fair bit with blackmail. You can get a much further away, I think, in life with pork pies. <laughs> Too true. <laughs> That's right. And and kind of, you know, and this, this reminds me so much of me, you know, always trying to sort of penny-wise and pound-foolish, as they say. <laughs> Steve, Stephen arrives just a few minutes late, and he pays about three times what a coach hire would have cost him because now, you know, he's had to pay this guy to get him there. He's got to bribe everybody because the prison's locking down to get through the debtor's side of prison to the sailor's part of the building. And, and the heart of the Marshall Sea, we learned, has always been it's been the Navy's prison throughout history. So this is this is kind of the real prison inside the prison. And, and Jack is being held there. And it's kind of different than I think, you know, it's it's a you know, maybe not completely different than what we saw in France, certainly different than what I think of being a prison today. It says that Jack, still having a little bit of money at this time, has hired two rooms. You know, Killick, his servant, is there, and Killick has to go to the outer, you know, the outer room to answer the door, and, uh, you know, with, with Stephen and the guard knock on it. And Killick tells Stephen as he enters that that there's a surprise for him. And Sophie walks out of the back room. She's been in there. She's got flour on her hands. She's been cooking. And this description, we knew that Stephen was pretty upset and distressed and disappointed in Sophie. But O'Brien writes, she kissed him on both cheeks, stooping to do so. And with a particular look, a blush and a squeeze of his hand conveyed to him that she was much ashamed of her recent weakness, that she should never behave so again and that he was not to hold it against her. So we we have this moment of Jack's friends rallying. You know, Stephen's here, Killick's here, Sophie is kind of saying, no, no, Stephen, I, I want to step back up at the forefront of, of Team Jack here along with you. Thank you for being here and not holding this against me. It's a lovely little uptick, isn't it? So Team Aubrey is being brought back together mostly you know, around the, the, the willpower and the insight of Stephen here, which is great. Mike, it's interesting. When we heard about Sophie having a bit of a, a fit of the vapors earlier on, we got that in reported speech from Stephen. But we get this in direct first-person physical contact. We get the, the kiss. We get the squeeze of the hand. We get the blush. Like This is the moment that O'Brien wants us to remember. And he tells it super quickly and economically. He really does. And, and it seems like the gun rooms had a little conversation recently about prison and debtors' prisons. 
Uh, you know, it, it's like I kind of mentioned a minute ago that this doesn't seem to be like prison as I know it here in America. Um, any insight about what's going on back here? Well, I, I, I read, especially from the, the knowledgeable folks on the gun room, it was quite common in this time for people to be imprisoned for debt. But the imprisonment for debt doesn't mean quite what you might think. It sounds a bit perverse that if somebody is in debt and owes money to others in society that you put them in prison because they can't work to restore their fortunes or to liquidate assets and then dissolve the debt. But actually being in prison for debt didn't mean that you're under lock and key all day long, especially not if you're a man, member of the, the gentlefolk. You will be expected to be resident at the prison, but that you might well be able to get permission to walk out on the streets, to go and transact some business, to go and, like I said, liquidate some assets. So debtor's prison doesn't mean being locked up the whole time. It does mean that your freedom is curtailed, but you're still able to walk about the streets under uh, you know, a license or a parole kind of arrangement. So Jack's not under such a close confinement here as he would have been in the Temple Prison in Paris, for example. Right, right, right. Well, and it, it's so nice. We see people, like you say, coming and going. And, you know, Kilik and Sophia right there, we're all making ourselves to home. It's, it's something. Yeah. And as the, the, the team is starting to gather there in the Marshall Sea, they're, they're all quite pleased to see each other. Jack is glad to see Stephen. He apologizes for not getting up. He's been roasting sausages and says, well, things are a little bit primitive now, but we will be ship-shaped by Monday. And we know from last chapter that ship-shaped for Jack means floor scrubbed, newly painted, everything turned out and turned over again. Stephen thinks it's already looking pretty clean. We've got lockers for storage. We've got a hanging chair. We've got hammocks. We've got one covered with a rug to make a sofa. It's much nicer, he thinks to himself, than the jail that they experienced in France. It's much nicer than the American jails that held Jack. And it's much nicer than the English sponging houses where Jack had needed to, to be held earlier on in his life. Jack asks about Nathaniel Martin, who, remember, is out with a hernia. We learn that he's in good hands. Stephen's hoping, nonetheless, to get more specific news of him. And the last little touch here, a nice little welcoming touch for Stephen. Sophie adds to the crust of the apple tart that she's making, pastry shamrocks. little tribute to the Irishman Stephen while he and Jack are sitting there talking. As all this talk is going on and as the apple pie is being uh, getting its finishing touches there, a young gentleman from the lawyer's office arrives and Jack talks to this guy. After the young gentleman from the lawyer's office has been and gone, Jack tells Stephen that the man seemed quite dashed that Jack was not happier upon learning that Mr. Lawrence had been retained as Jack's lawyer in court. And remember, we were hoping for Holroyd. Holroyd's not available. Lawrence is the lawyer that we've got. And Jack believes Lawrence is clever, but he still really doubts the need for a lawyer. He thinks that they're going to get along fine. Just like in a court-martial, we get along fine without lawyers. Uh, we have defaulters, captain's defaulters, and justice is done. Jack thinks that we ought to be able to get along just fine without any of this kind of flummery and manipulation from learned lawyers. This is also not like the contract disputes of Jack's business cases where you can kind of argue the terms of the contract. Jack believes that he'll be able to stand up in court, tell the judge and jury the plain truth about what happened. And since, in Jack's view, there is nothing fairer than English justice, they'll believe that he, Jack, never conspired with anyone. He followed Palmer's tip with an innocent mind that he was doing no more than acting on a racehorse tip. If he says, Jack says, if I was wrong to do so, I can cancel all of the time bargains. I had no guilty intent. If any man says that's not true, then the court can decide who to believe. 
And Mike, there's a ringing confidence here, apparently, as Jack says, I have every confidence in the justice of my country. But then the sentence closes as we hear that Jack was smiling at the pompous sound of his words. And Mike, it already sounds like this is a vain hope. Maybe Jack, or at least part of Jack, knows it. Earlier on, when we were learning about Sam Panda, Jack was expressing this great wish. He said that Sam Panda would be fine in his world, in his life, in his career, if only everyone saw things fairly like the Navy. And maybe we're going to encounter another one of these situations here. Jack's scratching his heads over the way other people behave. If only life was fair and straightforward and plain spoken like in the Navy, all would be fine. We hope that. Jack hopes that. I don't think <laughs> maybe our hopes are going to be dashed. I couldn't agree with you more, Ian. That, that, you know, I don't know whether this is just straightforward Jack. This is Jack in denial. But but I think he really needs to get a reality check about what's going on here. Well, Jack needs a reality check. Maybe we need to do our own little moment of reflection. Maybe we need to figure out whether we want to challenge Jack's view of English justice. Let's go and consult our authorities and take a short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back from the break. We hope that your legal minds have been fortified. I want to take a moment here just to mention a great bit of feedback that we got from a listener. Um, We spoke a few episodes ago about a statement being, I think Maturin said, a commonplace worthy of La Police. And we were debating whether that was a a harbour town in France or whether it was something else. Listener Valentin Manzanares, Valentin, I hope I've pronounced your surname correctly, who's from Switzerland and critically for this is a French speaker, had been listening to that episode, heard the La Palisse reference, and here's what he wrote via our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash lovers hole. Valentin says, here's the explanation from my point of view as a francophone. La Palisse was a French general from the 16th century and was famous enough to have several songs written about him. One of those songs has a line that was distorted and eventually read or sung as something like, translated into English, would he not have died, he would still be alive. And in French, s'il n'était mort, il serait encore en vie. He would still be alive. So later on, this saying was warped even further to give statements like 50 minutes before his death, he was still alive. So this kind of truism, this stylistic device became known as a la palissade. And it means an obvious truth. In this case, the statement that you can't trust people you don't know well. So says Valentin, there you have it. No relation to a, a harbour in Brittany, although he was surprised to learn of its existence. So um, I think, Mike, we want to say thank you, Valentin, and well done. And we're passing that on to all the listeners now. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for uh, for you know helping us discover what's underneath the uh, the mat as we pick it up uh, of another Patrick O'Brien Easter egg. Yeah. Brilliant. Well done. Fantastic. Glass of wine with you, sir. Amen. Mike, let's get back into it. We've got to do some more learning here, I think, about the real prospects for this trial, the real prospects for how the law might be going to treat Jack. Yeah, and it starts off, Stephen kind of learns that Jack has only ever been at Navy trials. and, And he tells Jack that he's actually sat in on some of these trials on land. 
And Stephen says, and I'll, I'll just quote him here. I do assure you, brother, that the rules of the game, what constitutes evidence, the exits and entrances, and who is allowed to speak when, and what he may say are infinitely more complex than they are in naval law. It's a game that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, growing more torturous with every generation. The rules are multiplying, the precedents accumulating, equity interfering, statutes galore, and now it is such a black, bitter tangle that a layman is perfectly helpless. I do beg you will attend to this eminent counselor and follow his advice." And, and Jack kind of thinks about it for a minute and concedes mm. that maybe it's sort of like using a pilot for what Jack says is even what seems the simplest harbor. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe Jack is starting to wake up to the fact that he needs the help and that law and plain speaking are not going to be on his side, at least not both at the same time. Maybe he's thinking, you think this is a complicated harbor, Stephen, but I realize it's a little simpler than that. But you want me to use a pilot. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so we bolster Team Aubrey a little bit more. We get a bit more knowledge about this lawyer, Mr. Lawrence. He has a reputation for fighting on behalf of his client the way that some medical men fight for their patients' lives. A nice connection there with the world of Stephen Maturin. Yeah. He's met with Jack solicitors. He meets with Stephen informally. We learned that Stephen and Lawrence both went to Trinity College, that the champion catholic emancipation and that they detest lord liverpool and most of his cabinet colleagues and by the way um, robert jenkinson second earl of liverpool was prime minister from 1812 to 1827 he was a poor fifth choice on the part of the regent who could not otherwise form a government so we're learning that lawrence has got some savvy and some fight on behalf of his clients but he's got connections with the world of fifth-rate politicians and the world of irish emancipation he's good but politically, Mike, he ain't no Holroyd. Right, right. Lawrence doesn't think that the ministry started this scandal, but he's absolutely convinced that they're going to do everything they can to take advantage of it. And, and he tells Stephen, I must tell you that if this Palmer mm -hmm. is not produced, physically produced and identified as the man in the chase, I mean, whether he denies the whole affair or not, then I fear for your friend. <laughs> this is a pretty scary moment. I, I, I think maybe we're being too spoilerish about this, but I think it's pretty clear from this sentence that Palmer's not going to be found. This this sounds like too much like chasing a privateer in the hope of a sighting. Right, right. Yo, Holrod says you gotta have Palmer. Lawrence says you gotta have Palmer. Without Palmer, there's no hope. And we're going. Yeah, yeah. I think we're to end up in the middle of the Channel Fleet as the privateer heads to the French coast without us. Yeah. Right. We get a bit more news here about what's going on with the resources and the organization of Team Jack Aubrey. Stephen passes the news to Lawrence that he's received a bank draft from a man who owes him a large card debt. And he's got news that a friend he operated upon has recovered. Mike, the friend who got operated upon is presumably Nathaniel Martin. So he's been down, but he's up again. And presumably the bank draft, that must be from Ray, right? Has a, right. Ray's hope for money, as far as we knew, had just sailed over the horizon with Babington, who's in the process of eloping with Fanny Ray. So what's going on? How has Ray paid his car debt? With what resources? There's something something fishy going on here. Yeah, it, it, it just doesn't stack up, doesn't stack up at all. But, but Stephen 
as sort of a thank offering, he says, you know, he's going to place this entire sum, this huge amount that Ray owed him as a reward for Palmer's discovery. Whoa. <laughs> Boy, there's Team Jack with Stephen absolutely leading the charge. Yeah. And there's a nice little bit of poetic symmetry there. Um, Stephen's got all of this money paid off a card debt from Ray, and he's going to use it for something that we know, but Stephen doesn't know yet, that we know is another little step towards Ray's undoing. So we hear that Lawrence hopes to get good news from Pratt. Um, Bail has been denied for Jack, so the case can be hurried forward, so it can be heard by a furious Tory, this Lord Quinborough, who's also a member of the cabinet. That's this Justice Quinborough. Um, Without Palmer in front of this furious Tory judge, there's no defence that can win. Wow. Pratt does meet Stephen you know, that afternoon and tells Stephen they found their man. But there's no triumph in his look or his tone. Uh, it turns out that one of, of Pratt's associates, one of these people that he hired with Stephen's money, was looking through the Southwark Coroner's river corpses and he found a body that met Palmer's description. Uh, and they also found a paper that had been circulated to the hospitals and police offices offering a reward for the news on the whereabouts of someone with this exact same description. And Pratt had gone to see the person on the handbill, an N. Barley of Lion's Inn. And, you know, for Pratt, the bells are all going off. It's like Lion's Inn, Lion's Inn, Lion's Inn. But this person, N. Barley, a woman, is gone. And it turns out she was what he called a flogging whore. Uh, you know, somebody in the, the you know, S&M line, and yep. that Paul Ogle, Ellis Palmer's real name, was her sweetheart. So Pratt said that even if they could find her, she's clearly not going to talk. She's going to deny everything. And she's going to know that they would kill her just as they had killed Palmer if she gets involved or says anything. So Stevens kind of thinking, well, this isn't all lost. I mean, we've got a corpse anyways. So why don't we bring the girl from the sitting board in or the guys who, you know, had had uh, taken care of the horses there? You know, maybe they can identify the body for us. They can identify this guy as the guy in the coach. And, you know, it, it should work, says Stephen, because, you know, you said that he was not in the water long. And Pratt says, well, he wasn't in the water long, but his face had been removed. Um, and yeah, it's like kind of, whoa. And, and Pratt goes on to say that he could look at this corpse with the removed face and know it was their man, but he doubted the folks from Sittingbourne could, you know, that there's, you know, he said, you know, I, I just don't think they're going to see it. And, and Stephen says, well, you know, I'm a medical man. Let me examine the body and, and see if I think they could identify it. If there's something there that they might see that they could identify. Right. So, we're relying on this evidence of the body to make the connection between the story and the presence of Jack in connection with this person known then as Ellis Palmer and this body and what we now know about its movements and where this person had been. It looks like the hope for making that connection is fading. And even though Pratt believes that Jack is in no way guilty, we can't rely on Pratt's judgment. Pratt believes that the body is Ellis Palmer. There's no way we can prove that Ellis... Palmer is the person, the faceless body that we've now got. So we're kind of stuck. And they're casting around for other ways that they can bolster Jack's position in this trial. Lawrence then asks whether Stephen and Sophie can convince Jack to incriminate his father, General Aubrey. 
And Stephen says he's not going to do it. I, I don't think, Mike, that's because Stephen thinks it's a bad idea. I think that's because Stephen knows that this is in no way something that Jack would be happy to have suggested. This is in no way something that Jack will agree to. Lawrence says, well, yeah, I noticed that Jack didn't take it well when I suggested it. That General and his friend had spread the rumour out the piece and had sold out of the market at the top, unlike Jack. So one little mark in Jack's favour is that the size of Jack's positions and the timing of his sales was trifling compared to theirs. They had made their transactions through outside untraceable dealers. All of the details of Jack's transactions are visible and known. So even though Jack's pattern of buying and selling was a little less culpable, he was stuck with the fact that he'd been transparent and open about them. So he's the one who appears in law to be left kind of holding the baby with this whole insider dealing thing. Yeah, and I, I almost get the impression that Jack kind of bought in and got, you know, sort of arrested and brought in, and perhaps has never even sold, <laughs> but is is being indicted as the guy that started this whole thing. Mm. Um, you know, and we, and we had so many hopes on, you know, being able to identify the body. And, and Stephen had even gone to look at it and said, you know, there really are no marks that the Sittingbourne folks could have seen to to tell them, yeah, this was the same guy. Stephen did say that he had seen traces of habitual flogging on Palmer's back. So, you know, we're all now convinced, yep, Palmer's connected to this woman, you know, the S&M woman at Lion's Inn. You know, it makes sense to Pratt, makes sense to Stephen. It would actually do them no good at trial and might actually hurt them because it's kind of a whole different diversion uh, away from the stock thing here. But so we're kind of in a bad place, as you say, even though it's clear the general and his friends did this, benefited from it and everything. And But Stephen tells Lawrence that, you know, Jack is not going to be led there. Uh, he's not going to be led there to turn on his father. He's not going to be led pretty much anywhere because he has too high a notion of English justice. He still believes that if he tells the truth, he'll be let go. And Stephen says he has a really high regard for judges. O'Brien writes, almost on a par with the Royal Navy or the Brigade of Guards or even perhaps the Anglican Church. Oh, some high company right there. <laughs> there you go. Right. And and we all know that, you know, the noble beginnings with Henry VIII. <laughs> having having been a whiskey pallion myself for a while, which is our American version of the Anglican Church. That, uh, yeah. Oh, I think we call it Episcopalians as well. But it was, it was oh, my yes. priest who, who, who gave me the alternate name. But Martin tells Matron that as a friend, he absolutely has to enlighten Jack on the law and, and this trial in specifics. And, you know, Stephen started saying, well, well, how do I blackguard the law? And interestingly, Lauren says, well, you know, we got the best law in the world, but you've got to tell him that this law, even though it's good, it's administered by human beings. And here we get at the crux of all of O'Brien's writing. You know, it's the human condition and us as people. Yeah. You know, Lauren says, remind him of the Lord Chancellors who have been dismissed for bribery and corruption. The political, cruel, and oppressive judges, including his own judge, Lord Quinborough. And, and Ian, you might give us a little insight here. You know, here we're hearing this political, cruel, oppressive. Quinborough, what's the uh, the real judge here in Cochrane's case? Well, the, it's fascinating. O'Brien goes to quite considerable lengths in his own note to this novel to point us towards the real-world situation with Thomas Cochrane that was the model for the case that we're talking about here. 
Um, there's even a Wikipedia page dedicated to the, uh, the stock market fraud of 1814. There are some things that O'Brien has found that are r- remarkable, almost unbelievable, but still were real for the day. And he's used them pretty directly. There absolutely was a judge who was well known for being involved in political trials and for being very hard on defense counsel. Um, and that was not Quinborough, but Ellenborough. Um, First Baron Lord Ellenborough, born 1750, died 1818, was an English judge famous for mercantile law and for famous for some of these trials. Not always a complete brute of a judge. He passed some judgments later in his career that were quite humane about the treatment of French prisoners of war and refugees. But he absolutely stands out as the source for this pen portrait of this fairly brutal, fairly harsh judge called Quinborough. Lots of other things about the stock exchange fraud of 1814 that are uh, parallel between Cochrane and Aubrey. Cochrane was found to have made some money on some transactions that uh, coincided with uh, a stock exchange ramping rumor that was based on a false uh, idea of peace with the French. Cochrane made some money, but not as much as he might have made it if he'd held out to the very top of the market. Cochrane's position was made worse because his uncle, Andrew Cochrane Johnston, had also been involved somehow in this scam and had made some money of his own. So I think there's a connection there between Andrew Cochrane Johnston in real life and General Aubrey, Jack's father, in the story. The sentences, the outcome, the verdict, as we're going to learn, have some very strong parallels between what happened in the case of Cochrane and what happened in the case of Jack Aubrey. There doesn't, Mike, there doesn't seem to be a suggestion that the trial of Thomas Cochrane had any connection to national level corruption or espionage, which is what I think we're looking at here. But it was certainly very clearly something of a show trial, and there was very clearly a strong political agenda behind the the choice and the attitude of Lord Ellenborough in real life, similarly to the choice and the attitude of Lord Quinborough, who we're encountering here. So... There's a lot for us to learn about the parallels between these two. O'Brien points us very clearly towards this real-world inspiration. Quinborough is the name in the text. Ellenborough was the name in real life. And I love how O'Brien says, you know, that that the way he's using this tale of, of Cochrane's trial, uh, he says, is not to prove or disprove the guilt of either side, but rather to show exactly how the trial proceeded. And this knowledge I have used simplifying the complex legal issues annihilating scores of witnesses, but carefully retaining the structure of the trial together with its curious timetable. The reader may therefore accept the sequence of events almost unbelievable to a modern ear as quite authentic. So much like our battle scenes, O'Brien's trying to reassure us that, you know, it may sound fantastical, but it's what actually happened. So here it goes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, a little bit like the bear costume in Post Captain. It's going to sound remarkable, but O'Brien is telling us it was a real thing. Yes, yeah, it's a great one. Well, speaking of that bear, Lawrence kind of goes on. You know, he said, what a bear this judge is, if you will. Yeah. And then he talks about what a bear the lawyers are. And Lawrence is telling Stephen to tell Jack about the, you know, the unscrupulous lawyers who go for a verdict by any means with no regard of justice, just like Pierce, by the way, who's the lead for the prosecution in this trial, a man, Lawrence says, with a reputation as a treasury devil before he moved on to have his own practice. And I can't help but notice how many times in this story 
we keep turning up bad actors who are either in the Treasury or formerly from the Treasury, including Ray. So that uh, I don't know. It's just, you know, kind of this a little bit in the background here. I I think it's the second of Patrick O'Brien's badges of dishonor. The first one is Marine lieutenants who play the German flute. (laughs) And the second is being uh, an administrator or a lawyer or something with the Treasury. So there you go. Finally, Lawrence says, you know, if, if this wasn't all bad enough with the judges and the lawyers, some of General Aubrey's stock jobbing friends are rumored to be turning King's evidence. So really potential bad news for Jack. Just like you know, General Aubrey is hoping that all the blame goes to his associates and Jack, now some of his associates are going to turn around and say, yeah, this was all Jack. And Jack is very reluctant to go after his father. I think that Lawrence and maybe with a little bit of connivance, Stephen are saying, well, you know, if you're going to be strictly utilitarian about this, you could bring your father along with you and deflect some of the discredit and deflect some of the guilt in his direction. Jack is absolutely not going to do this. Stephen and Lawrence think, well, maybe there's not much consequence to discrediting your father because he's not been a great father. He's disinherited you by having a second child with the uh, with his with his second wife, the milkmaid. Uh, he hardly knows the name of your wife. He shows no day-to-day interest or intimacy or affection for you at all. You're not losing very much by discrediting your father, but Jack is absolutely bound by the, the sentiment towards family and the code of honor. He would absolutely not dream of dragging his father, a family member, down with him. And we've got this contrast again, I think, between the world as Jack would like it to be and the world as the more prosaic characters in the story, like Lawrence and Stephen, the, the world as it really is. And Jack really can't reconcile these two. Yeah. Meanwhile, we learned that this... Uh, Prosecution lawyer Pierce is going to go after Lawrence's witnesses if he has any. And Quinborough is going to sum up. And Quinborough's summing up is going to be the last thing the people in the jury will hear. Not Lawrence. And we can bet our very last dollar that Quinborough's summing up is going to favor Pierce and he's going to ignore Lawrence. So we've got to let Aubrey know that the ministry is going to dig up anything and everything on Jack. They're going to go digging his through his friends, his connections. Never mind what resources Stephen's got. The Treasury, the government also has great resources to go digging for material that will discredit Jack. They'll drag his name through the mud. And the man charged along with Jack, Mr. Cummings, one of the men who was at Buttons with the General, has a past history of trading in dubious joint stock companies, has a history of fraudulent bankruptcy and other things that will come out. The final summary is pretty damning, I think, from Lawrence. He says, Captain Aubrey is in deep water. And his confidence is displaced. Wow. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, Stephen had asked Lawrence, if if Jack won't go after his dad, you know, what are you going to do? And you just talked about some of that. And it was fascinating. You know, one of the things that Lawrence talked about was, you know, I'll have to lean on Jack's distinguished record and his wounds. You know, tell me, Stephen, about some of his wounds. But, you know, then Lawrence says, but the jury is likely to be city men, as Lawrence yeah. calls them. And Lawrence says, For them, money is far more important in the city than sentiment, let alone patriotism. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, this is, oh boy. Uh, And is it not ever so? So (laughs) kind of hearing all this, Stephen says, well, you know, if worse comes to worse, what's going to happen to Jack? And Lawrence says, and I'll I'll quote O'Brien here, a heavy fine for certain, perhaps the pillory, perhaps imprisonment, 
perhaps both. And, and Stevens blown away. The pillory. Do you tell me so? The pillory for a naval officer? Oh, yes, sir. It's quite a usual punishment in the city for fraudulent dealings and so on. And of course, he would be dismissed the service. And Stephen reacts, God between us and evil. And O'Brien tells us that Stephen was moved beyond his usual calm and did not recover even the appearance of it until he was walking up the steps of his club. Yeah. So Stephen's got this heavy heart now. He realizes, I think, the depth of the situation. He realizes just how hopelessly out of touch Jack is with the realities of how this trial might go. And he's off to see Blaine again. He apologizes to Blaine as he gets to the club for being late. He says that now Palmer can't be called because he's been found mutilated in the river. Um, Lawrence has no hope for Jack. I do not suppose he has, said Sir Joseph. Appearances are so very much against poor Aubrey. If his worst enemy had contrived this scheme, he could not have done him more harm. By the way, Mike, I think we're invited to speculate that maybe it is Stephen and Jack's worst enemies that have precisely engineered this scheme, but we don't know about we don't know about that yet. Right. Stephen asks Blaine then if he thinks Jack is going to be condemned. After ask him if he predicts a guilty verdict. Blaine says it's a political trial. It's aimed at General Aubrey at the Radicals. That the intent is to ruin everyone's reputation. Nothing else matters. And I think he's basically saying that a stain on Jack's reputation and this severe punishment is just collateral damage as they're lashing out against the radical political interests. Exactly. Blaine says the ministry must have welcomed the opportunity to do this. Indeed, says Blaine, I am sometimes tempted to wonder whether some zealous follower may not have engineered it, anticipating their wishes and perhaps at the same time meaning to enrich himself. It is a specious theory, although I do not believe it. And Mike, that rings a bell, doesn't it? That gets us back to Ray paid off his car debt and somebody found a way to enrich themselves. Jack and Stephen's worst enemy, some zealous follower. Mm, connections there. Well, and it's, you know, it's so typical here. You know, the way Blaine and Stephen have overlooked Ray time and time again, Ray and Ledworth, how I think O'Brien is making it almost crystal clear here that, yeah, all this stuff didn't just happen. Somebody did engineer this. And in fact, as they're saying, you know, we kind of heard time and time again, we don't think the ministry did this to set up Jack, but whoever did it to set up Jack, it's given the ministry a chance to go after General Aubrey and the radicals. And as you say, Jack is collateral damage here. And boy, I'm, I'm dying to get ahead to find out if we do ever find out who's got their fingers in the pot here, who set this all up. So now, you know, Team Jack fully comes together in the person of Stephen Matron. And Matron tells Blaine that if Jack is condemned and dismissed from the service, that he'd go mad on land. And, and Stephen says, you know, quite honestly, I don't really have any great desire to hang around here in England either. And so Stephen's telling Blaine he's thinking about buying the surprise, taking out letters of Mark, manning the surprise as a privateer and asking Jack to command her. He asked Blaine to think about it, you know, take it, take a night and and give me your opinion tomorrow. And, and Blaine says, essentially, on the face of it, I think it's a really good idea. Other captains have done so. They've hurt the enemy and their trade substantially and thereby enriched themselves. 
And Stephen has to run for the marshalcy again. And this time, Sir Joseph, <laughs> who is smart and knows Stephen well, insists that Stephen takes a coach and makes sure that one is called as Stephen runs upstairs to grab his things. So as Team Jack is taking shape, it's it's strange that I think Jack is getting a little by little more dissociated from this as the time goes on. Mm. He's got Sophie there, he's got Killick there, but I think he's in his own little world. When Stephen gets back to the Marshall Sea, he finds Jack finishing a game of fives in the courtyard. Uh, fives is like a cross between squash and handball. It's a game played against the wall, batting the ball with your hand. Jack's playing fives, talking about how out of shape he is. And Stephen kind of joins in this reflection on Jack's fitness. He says, ah, you're always grossly obese. Uh, were you to walk 10 miles a day and eat half of what you do, in fact, devour, you would be able to play at the handball like a Christian rather than a galvanized manatee or a dugong. That's a little bit of their old, old banter between Stephen and Jack. And Stephen greets Mr. Goodridge, who's there. He's the former master of the Polycrest. So this is reaching back to Jack's service relationships all the way back in the post-captain days. This is Mr. Goodridge, who confused phoenixes and comets and had bitten a rear admiral's pointing finger when being corrected. So this is somebody who hasn't always been on the right side of, uh, of, of, of polite behavior. I, I, I think we're invited to say, here's somebody out of touch with reality playing handball with somebody else out of touch with reality. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hmm. But more of this distraction, I think, more of this amiable distraction for Jack, as Stephen tells him he's brought a paper with him that is meant to be part of Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire, that famous 18th century Enlightenment treatise on the final centuries, the final generations of the Roman Empire. Still you know, name-checked by everybody who studies the classics. He's bought with him this paper, meant to be from this great work, The Decline and Fall, withdrawn at the last moment for fear of offending lawyers and judges. Now, Stephen wants to sort of divert Jack with this story, but then he realises he's brought the wrong paper. He's brought a paper by Huber on bees, which is another heart back to post-captain, and summarises what he can from memory. And Mike, I going to speculate about how successful he is in keeping Jack's attention here. Sophie and Killick had to leave before the jail is locked down to retrieve things from home. And Stephen, meanwhile, quotes a few lines, which we presume are from Gibbon, about entrusting nations to men whose profession values reason as the instrument of dispute and interpreting laws for private interests. He says that Gibbon felt that part of the empire's fall was due to the number of lawyers. So now we see where he's going with this. He's trying to make a heavy-handed point about the perils of depending on lawyers. He says, men who believe whatever they can square with the law is right, are noxious when they reach powerful positions. They have statutes, not ethics. They don't impose their own conscience, only what a judge will allow. I'm like, this is, you might say realistic, you might say a very cynical view, not only of the actions, but of the motives of lawyers. And Stephen's trying very broadly here to hint to Jack that he can't have completely unvarnished faith in lawyers, even, even pugnacious lawyers like Lawrence. This miserable sophistry, he says, which disregards not only epistemology, but also the intuitive perception that informs all daily intercourse is sometimes formulaic. Yet I have known men who have so prostituted their intelligence that they believe it. And Jack comes back. He says, oh, come, Stephen. Surely saying that all lawyers are bad is about as wise as saying that all sailors are good, ain't it? Yeah, a little moment of self-awareness there from Jack. Stephen comes back saying, I do not say that all lawyers are bad, but I do maintain that the general tendency is bad. 
standing up in a court for whichever side has paid you, affecting warmth and conviction, and doing everything you can to win the case, whatever your private opinion may be, will soon dull any fine sense of honour. The mercenary soldier is not a valued creature, but at least he risks his life, whereas these men merely risk their next fee. Oh, it's really trying hard to tell it like it is here for Jack. Right, right. Thinking that, you know, surely this is something Jack can get his head around. Yeah, but Jack's not having it, is he? No, no, no. Jack reminds Stephen that, you know, some of the members of their club are lawyers. And Jack goes on to say that unlike the way it may be in Ireland or on the continent, in England, most lawyers are perfectly honorable. And O'Brien writes, after all, everyone agrees that English justice is the best in the world. This coming from the mouth of Jack here. And Stephen says that the temptation is the same in all countries, even more so, not just for lawyers, but for judges to make the wrong seem right. O'Brien writes that judges have enormous powers, and if they choose, they may be cruel, oppressive, forward, and perverse virtually without control. They may interrupt, bully, further their political views, and pervert the course of justice. Stephen tells Jack about a time when they were in India, when Stephen was introduced to a judge in India known as the just judge. And he points out to Jack, says, it's just ludicrous that you have one judge in the midst of these thousands, or you know, perhaps they are tens of thousands, who is called the just judge. And Jack says, no, 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 judges are all thought of as great men. And you can almost see Stephen kind of pounding the table saying, you know, only by those who don't know them. And, you know, it goes on to cite a number of examples of bad judges and their bad behavior. Jack's still not there, though. Yeah, he says there must be some good lawyers. Stephen right. says, well, yes, maybe there are some good lawyers, but he's concerned with the lawyers and the judge in Jack's case. And Stephen says, shaking your confidence in the perfect impartial justice of an English court of law. And I want to tell you that your judge and your prosecutor are of the kind I have described. And he goes on to say that Lord Quimber is notoriously violent, overbearing, rude, ill-tempered. And as we heard before, he is a member of the cabinet. While, says Stephen, your father and his friends are the most violent members of the opposition. Mr. Pierce, who leads for the prosecution, is shrewd, clever, brilliant at cross-examination, much given to insulting witnesses so that they lose their temper, conversant with every legal quirk and turn, a very quick-witted, plausible scrub. Wow. And he wraps up by saying, I say this so that you should not be quite certain that the truth will prevail or that innocence is a certain shield, so that you should attend to Lawrence's advice and so that you should at least allow him to hint that your father was something less than discreet. And Stephen's coming back to this even very softly stated idea that Jack has nothing to lose by drawing some of the discredit down onto his father. It's a very, very subtle ask. It's a very big step from someone like Stephen who hates informers, but he's clearly trying to be very clear, cold-eyed and almost utilitarian about this choice. And I wonder if he's reflecting on the trade-off with what he knows will happen to Jack if the trial goes against him. Right. I might, it's, it's a very lovable portrayal of Jack, this person who's loyal to family, even when it's hopeless, loyal to the, the good standing of the Navy, which to him is the same as family. It's, it's all been pretty one-sided. Or General Aubrey hasn't shown Jack actually very much affection or given him very much support in life. The Navy hasn't exactly been 
100% uh, Team Jack Aubrey over the years. So despite all of this, Jack is still clinging to his loyalty. I think it makes us like him a lot, but it doesn't make us confident for what might happen next. No, and it, it kind of makes me feel, again, in, in, in my life so many times along the lines, that time when you're looking at somebody, including yourself in the mirror, and you realize the difference between loving and enabling somebody. Yeah. Say, you know, <laughs> I, I got to get over this. Yeah. I'm kind of spinning this all this way, but really it's actually the other way. And I would definitely say that in this case, Jack is hopelessly enabling his father by trying to quote unquote, remain loyal and not be an informer. And, and I think we've seen this sometimes just a little bit. I love the way Jack treats his the, the people under his command. I love the fact that he's not a flogging captain. And, and I love the fact that he, you know, he's grace filled and he wants to, you know, kind of give people a second chance and everything. But you, you do always have to watch that line, especially when, as you were just talking about, when there's huge consequences for putting yourself out here against all everybody else's better judgment here. And, and we kind of hope that it seems like maybe, maybe the light goes on a little bit because Jack replies, yes. You speak very much as a friend, and I am most deeply beholden to you. And I'm thinking, okay, finally, baby, mm. Stephen, you know, has has kind of struck the mark here. He's gotten to Jack a little bit, but no, no. And, and Jack goes on, but there is one thing you forget, and that is the jury. I do not know how it may be in Ireland or in foreign parts. And boy, Jack is really kind of rubbing hard on Stephen in these conversations. And God bless Stephen. He's not taking the bait. But Uh in England, we have a jury. That is what makes our justice the best in the world. The lawyers may be as bad as you say, but it seems to me that if 12 ordinary men hear a plain, truthful account, they will believe it. And if by any wild chance they come down hard on me, why, I hope I can bear it. Tell me, Stephen, did you remember my fiddle strings? Oh, by my soul, Jack, cried Stephen, clutching his pocket. I'm afraid I forgot them entirely. End of chapter seven. Oh, my gosh. Now we've got that one moment where it looks like Stephen might have reached him. Jack brushes him off entirely with the jury. And then as if in the absolute highest realms of denial, by the way, do you have my fiddle strings? And, and Stephen, yeah. oh my gosh, I want to say Stephen going, fiddle strings? How are you thinking about fiddle strings in a moment like this? Going, oh my gosh, Jack, I entirely forgot them. You know, it's like, no. And, and you should too. <laughs> right, exactly. We don't, you know, stop fiddling. To go back to Gibbons, Rome is burning, my friend. <laughs> oh, very good. Oh my gosh! Oh, but Mike, it's 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 a really grim moment here. We've got nothing but jeopardy for Jack. Team Jack is around him. He's got Sophie. He's got Killick. He's got an almost good lawyer. He's got Lawrence. He's got Stephen. He's got Blaine. He's got Pratt. But so much seems to be stacked against him. Yeah, it really does. It really does. And if and if he's placing his confidence in these twelve ordinary men of the jury, I I, I remember from my own personal history that it's it's a misplaced confidence. I remember being on a huge consulting endeavor, uh-huh. absolutely having to head out of town. I mean, this is kind of make it or break it time at the end of the project and getting a jury notice, a jury call. 
And I go there and I'm thinking, if I can just get out of here quickly, I can still make that flight. And I think I would have been a good member of that jury. But taking my own personal interest into heart and knowing how these things work, as soon as they put me up there and talked to me and asked me if I had any preconceived notions about the guilt or innocence of this person, I said, well, if he wasn't guilty, why would they have arrested him? To which he said, dismissed, and I ran immediately to the airport, and I've looked back on that going, you bastard. <laughs> oh, Mike, you're such a dark horse. Oh, God, I hate that. I just hate that. And, you know, it was not, it was certainly not a, a, a super big, big deal, but who knows what happened to that person? Who knows what happened to that trial? Shame on me for not even going back and finding that out. So, Jack... Don't place your confidence in the jury here, right? Well, I've got to say, I've, I've done jury service twice, once as a foreman and once as just a member of the jury. And it's it's quite the eye-opener, but it's a world apart. If you look at the way the justice system works, at least in the UK, the difference between the experience that Jack is about to go through and the experience that accused people go through is we've come a long way since 1814, I'm pleased to say. Well, on some occasions, I think we've come a long way. I know one of the times that I was serving on a jury, and, and it was a, a case of some consequence, uh, we had a break, and I was in the elevator going up to lunch at this, you know, and, and I hate this, this kind of sounds like blacks, you know, at this city club. Yeah. In the same elevator was the judge who happens to be kind of bragging and yakking to some of his colleagues in there. And he pulls up his robe to show his pearl-handled pistols. And he's talking about these drunken yahoos who were both kind of all out of their minds. And, you know, it would do the world a better service if they both had kind of just run right into each other and, and, and removed both of themselves from the earth. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, you're the judge on this? I'm glad I'm in the jury. So... <laughs> but so where are we here in you know jack ashore oh my god yeah. jack ashore uh, all these people trying to help him as you say and and it's so in character it seems for jack to be this believer in custom in all things england to not yep. be an informer to be loyal to his father because of who jack is not because of anything about his father deserving this but, you know, what happens from here? Yeah, and, and there's still a whole lot else that's happening in this book that we haven't been in direct touch with for a chapter or two. We've got the story with Ray. We've got this scheme that Blaine and Stephen have put in place to find out what's really going on with naval intelligence. We've got Diana. We've got Stephen's potential mission to France. Mike, I think we need to keep going. What do you say to just a tiny bit more Patrick O'Brien? Ian, I should like that of all things. times what a cost would have coached him. Uh, sorry. <laughs> he pays about, there's our outtake. <laughs> he pays about three times what a coach hire would have cost him.